Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. We're frustrated by science journalism today being reduced to brief stories hiding behind clickbait headlines. Our goal with this podcast is to change that. We want to report on breaking science news stories and discoveries in a responsible way. That means going into the actual methods behind each study, and then having a realistic discussion with each other about present and potential future impacts of each result. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, Trapping Light, How to Stop the Unstoppable, and Iron on the Mind, Could Alzheimer's Disease Be Related to the Amount of Iron in Your Brain? Jesse, why don't you get us started? Sure thing. Okay, so uh, I called this story Trapping Light. Um, and as you might expect, we are in for some physics, so brace yourself. All right. I am braced. <laughs> my my pre-physics stance. Yeah, and don't worry, I'm not hugely good at physics naturally myself, so we're going to try and go into some, bring this back to basics and figure out what the heck is going on. So Excellent. This started with uh, some physicists at Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris. Okay. They found a way to effectively store light in a fiber optic cable for a short time before releasing it back. Okay. Yeah. And that is already hard to understand. That conflicts with my idea of light. Yeah. Well, light is not really easy to catch, let alone release. Like anyone who's sort of watched the magic school bus or taken a physics class knows that once light hits something, it's usually either reflected back or it stops, it's absorbed, and it's gone. Yeah. Those are the two options in my mind as possibilities with light. Exactly. So the the, the idea of like stopping it and holding on to it and then letting it keep going is a pretty crazy concept to me. Yeah. How the heck did they do this? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So I was looking into this paper and it took me an abnormally long time to figure out what the heck was going on. Okay. Because it's physics. <laughs> so we got to start with looking into something called EIT. EIT stands for electromagnetically induced transparency. Okay. So naturally, I wanted to figure out what that was. I went to Wikipedia and here is what Wikipedia told me. EIT is a coherent optical nonlinearity which renders a medium transparent over a narrow spectral range within an absorption line. Oh, totally. <laughs> that is extremely rude and does not help me whatsoever. Not even a little bit. Okay, so let's let's try to figure out what it actually means. As we know, light is a wave and also a particle, but we're not worried about that right now. Okay. And l- much like sound waves, light has different frequencies. Mm-hmm. Red light, for instance, has a different wavelength or frequency from blue light right it's got a longer wavelength lower frequency exactly much like a a, a low pitch sound has a really large wavelength compared to like a higher pitch sound which has a really short wavelength yeah sure so eit is basically a condition where an otherwise opaque mass of atoms meaning light can't pass through them allows a certain frequency range of light through say for example just green light a mass of atoms what do you mean by that like a cloud of atoms uh I'll, i'll just ruin it right now they use cesium for this. So okay. we're talking about a cloud of cesium atoms. Cloud of cesium. Okay. Yeah. So we're t- talking about EIT. Mm-hmm. When matter has EIT, that electromagnetically induced transparency, okay. it lets that certain frequency range of light through, but it disperses the light a huge amount. So it becomes very slow, essentially. It takes a long time to move through. The light becomes slow. Yes. Because it's being dispersed around. When, when you shine light through a prism or a piece of glass, it actually slows down and bends. And that's why you get that c- color rainbow. Mm-hmm. This is just something that slows down light a heck of a lot more than that. All right. So let's get back to the actual study. 
the researchers got a fiber optic cable, um, which many of us have seen before, just that long, thin, transparent cable that you can shine light into one end and it comes out the other. It's a great yeah. conduit for light. But this particular fiber optic cable, they pinched in the middle in just the right way. So it has this really thin section. They physically pinched it. Yes. You can kind of imagine okay. it like kind of like sausage links together where they've got okay. the, the big fat parts and then there's this little tiny bit in the middle that's connecting them. It's like when, when my mom was watering the garden, I was like pinch the, the garden hose in the middle to, to stop the flow of water. Yeah. Just to, kind of like know. that. Mess um, with my mother. At, at the narrow part of the pinch, yeah. the cable was only 400 nanometers in diameter, which is tiny. Wow. Mm -hmm. So then, <laughs> around the pinched part, mm -hmm. they put a cloud of cesium atoms. Cesium, if you don't know it, is a metal that is liquid at room temperature. Oh, wow. It's widely used in atomic clocks. Okay. Yeah. So, so first they supercooled the cesium atoms. All right. And then they shone a laser at them that was calibrated in just the right way that the energy from the laser induced this condition of EIT, that electromagnetically induced transparency, in right. that cloud of atoms. Okay. So now we've got fiber optic cable, which then mm -hmm. hits this bottleneck, this little thin part, around which we've got this cloud of cesium atoms, which are super cool and have EIT. This is a, an elaborate science fair project, that's <laughs> oh for sure. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so what they found is that when the light beam that they shine through the fiber optic cable gets to that bottleneck, mm -hmm. about 40% of it goes out into the cesium cloud. It goes out of the fiber optic cable. Yes, because okay. not all of it can go through because it's just too thin. Yeah, sure. Um, that, that's where the analogy with the hose kind of fails a bit. Um, right, I guess that's true. You can imagine if, it, if, if, if the hose was permeable, then you yeah. know, the water would have to leak out because it couldn't. Yeah, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So uh, that, some of that light goes out in the cesium cloud. And the crazy thing is that it is basically stored in that cloud for a programmable period of time, depending on the conditions of it. Hmm. And then like, yeah, the light is released back into the fiber optic cable and it keeps traveling it's down. It's just stored in the midsection of the cable there. Yeah, in that cloud of cesium. So like you said a programmable period of time. What sort of period of time are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a pretty small period of time, but a pretty huge amount of time for stopping light. Right. Um, they got they got it up to five microseconds. Oh, that's small. <laughs> it, that is small. But when you look at how fast light travels, in a, in a fiber, it will travel about mm -hmm. to, uh, 200,000 kilometers per second. Okay. Which is blisteringly fast. Yes, um, very much so. But if you do the math on this with five microseconds, pause mm -hmm. in there. It means yeah. that they can store light for the amount of time that it would have taken for it to travel one kilometer. Okay. So put a kilometer lag in that bit of light. Yeah, exactly. And that is okay. pretty significant. Yeah. And of course, the hope is that they're going to be able to get that amount of time up in the future. Right. So that that's pretty much what they did. Um, mm -hmm. That's pretty much all there is to it. And, you know, it's really very complex physics to accomplish something that seems simple and is actually incredibly impressive. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, I got one question. Yeah, I'll t I will try and answer. Why? Yeah. Um, like, it's it's it sounds really cool. And mm -hmm. it's, like, bending the my understanding of how light works and how light travels. But why are we doing this? Well, the biggest implication here would be for quantum computing and networking. Okay. Um, because photons are quantum particles. And this mm -hmm. is the first time we've been able to catch and halt a particle like that. Okay. So it could be really useful for storing quantum information in large networks. Hmm. Um, 
All right. Quantum computing is its own complex topic that I still oh, yes. just do not fully understand. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll try and do a story on it in the future, and I can use that as an excuse to figure out what the heck's going on there. Yeah. But definitely, this is something that has its biggest real-world use in the world of quantum networking. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Because, yeah, like, this is the first time we've been able to take light and stop it for that long. Yeah. And release the same light. And it, it, should, it needs to be mentioned that not all of that light goes back. We're, um, I, I believe right. it's around 10% of the light ends up being released back into the cable after that period of five microseconds. Okay, so it's not overly efficient. It's not efficient at all, right? That's losing yeah. 90% of the light. But it's an incredibly high signal-to-noise ratio still. Yeah, sure sounds like it. So while we're losing a lot of the, the, the magnitude, the amplitude of the light, we still are able to, at the other end of the cable, get the exact same information that we would have gotten at the beginning. Right. Right? So gotcha. we're sending some sort of code or complex information in the light, mm-hmm. and we stored that and then passed it on. Even yeah. though we're only getting 10% of the amount of that at the end, yeah. we'd still have no trouble figuring out what the code that was sent was. Oh, that's very cool. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's very cool. But yeah, that's, that's basically the story. That's awesome. A headline caught my eye the other week, which I just had to look into more. And the headline I saw was, Iron Levels in Brain Predict When People Get Alzheimer's. Whoa, I see why that caught your eye. Right? So, I mean, just a brief bit of background info. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. But it's a type of dementia. And the most widely known symptom is, of course, short-term memory loss. But it can also affect language. It can affect orientation. It can affect mood, behavior. And it's degenerative. Right. So it's a disease that gets worse over time. And anyone who's had personal connection with this knows that it's a devastating disease for both those suffering from it and for their loved ones. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. It's a very brutal disease. And despite it being a really intense area of modern medical research, the causes of Alzheimer's are still really poorly understood. Yeah. So the idea that we could maybe predict Alzheimer's with a really simple test is fascinating. Yeah, that would be amazing. And I had to look more into it. Okay. So what happened here was a very simple study, elegantly simple, and had a really cool result. Mm -hmm. It was previously known that there was a correlation between people with Alzheimer's disease and high iron levels in their brains. Oh, high iron levels. Okay, I was expecting expecting you were going to say low levels for some reason. You see, that's the thing, because we're used to like low iron being uh, an issue for so many parts of human health. Right, but I guess that's in the the bloodstream. Right, Right. exactly. So we're not looking at the bloodstream here. We're looking at cerebral spinal fluid. Okay, that's the that's the fluid that's like around your brain and between your brain and your skull, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So like much good science, they started with this simple correlation. And that is that the relationship was known, but the reason for it was not. Right. And the reason for it is still not all that clear, but this study really did forward our understanding of it quite a bit. Okay. So this was research out of the University of Melbourne. In Australia. And what researchers did is they followed 91 cognitively healthy people and 104 people with some sort of mild cognitive impairment. Okay. These are all people over 55, sort of people that might develop Alzheimer's at some point in the not too distant future. Sure. So cognitive impairment meaning some memory issues or... Some memory yeah. issues or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. So they took a sample of cerebral spinal fluid from all these people mm-hmm. and they analyzed it for ferritin. 
And this is a protein that binds to iron in the cerebral spinal fluid. Okay. So it's sort of a proxy for iron. And for seven years, they followed these people to see if they were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And simply taking that uh, ferritin data and whether or not they were diagnosed, a kind of remarkable result emerged. Yeah. Which is that for every nanogram of iron per milliliter of the cerebral spinal fluid, mm -hmm. we're talking quite low concentrations here, people were diagnosed with Alzheimer's three months earlier. Oh, wow. So for every nanogram, the diagnosis occurred three months earlier, on average. Interesting. Was it, and it was that linear? It was that linear. Yeah. And so, of course, there's a lot of spread around this. The data is not perfect by any means. Of course. But the result actually had some degree of rough predictive power. Wow. Which is fascinating. So what can be done with this information? Well, I mean, first of all, it raises the possibility of predicting the onset and the speed of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. But that on its own doesn't help people too much. Right. The next step is testing whether some sort of iron-reducing drug or iron-reducing treatment could have any hope of slowing the disease. Okay, yeah. I mean, can we can we remove iron from the brain? Well, yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to do it. The easiest way to remove iron, well, first of all, you want to remove from your bloodstream and then it'll, you know, the, that effect will be percolated into the cerebral spinal fluid. Is it is it proportional like that? Like you, if you reduce your iron in your blood, it'll reduce the iron in the brain? Somewhat, yes. S to some degree. Okay. I don't know how proportional it is. I don't know if it's linear. I don't know the transfer of that. But a reduction of iron in your blood will result in a reduction of iron in your cerebral spinal fluid. Okay. <laughs> so then it's like anemia versus Alzheimer's. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a couple ways to do that, though, right? The easiest way to do it is to simply, you know, put someone through a blood transfusion. Right. That, that will reduce the iron in your blood. But that's, a, you know, a really, you know, invasive process, and there's a ton of risks associated with yeah. it. And anemia is a huge risk. Yes. The other idea is this effect known as chelation. Oh, that sounds super familiar. Yeah. So chelation just means you have a molecule which binds really tightly to a metal. I just remembered. It's from you remembered researching a story for from like a, a couple months back when we talked yeah. about um, the uh, origins of life, early origins of life, and I talked about yes. the the iron iron world yeah. hypothesis yeah. of exactly. Genesis. Okay, yeah. I, I sorry. Exactly. <laughs> so so like chelation happens to iron in the ocean. You find these you know bits of iron or atoms of iron really surrounded by complicated organic molecules yeah it's also how for example if you have any sort of heavy metal poisoning mm -hmm. it's how they treat you you they make you drink a chemical which just binds to the metal as quickly as possible so a study actually did do this in 1991 there was a two-year oh. study wow that found that lowering metal ion concentrations including iron through drugs which were chelators could actually half the rate of cognitive decline of Alzheimer's. Uh, okay, that's so. That's that sounds awesome. So yeah, I pop, mean, it was pop a my bubble, small please, sample cause... size. Oh, oh uh, not really. I mean, it was a small sample size, and it was a short study. Two years is not a long time. Yeah, when it comes to this sort of stuff. But the study was largely overlooked at the time, and this is now being re-identified as a promising direction of research, which is likely to be renewed. Yeah, that sounds hugely promising. I mean, like. I, yeah. I I have a tendency to get overexcited by by medical studies that end up taking years and years and years to actually pan out into anything real. But yes. like, that sounds really promising to me. It sounds really promising. I mean, this 
very clearly needs another study, another study done for a longer period of time, a yeah. larger sample size. And I mean, yeah, the main the main thing I want to see is if we reduce if yeah. we reduce that iron level, does that actually reduce the period of time, or is that or is that just an indicator yeah. of it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the real question. Yeah, here. yeah. So this is going to take a long time. It's going to be a multiple year study, which is needed, mm-hmm. but it's promising for sure. And similar studies into iron-reducing drugs have also shown promising signs for slowing the progression of Parkinson's disease. Oh, cool. So there might be some really interesting effects between metals and what goes on in our minds. Interesting. And I mean, those are both neurologically-based diseases where we don't understand why they progress at different speeds. We don't understand what starts them in the first place. Absolutely. especially promising correlation, and it's great information about it. Yeah, especially with early onset ones too, right? Yeah, Both of those can occur at a really early age. I feel like I'm getting overexcited, but that sounds like such a a definitive correlation. Yeah. Remember, correlation's not causation. I know. But But it could be. That's a belief. It's believable, right? It's it's believable, yes. Correlation is not causation. But, yeah. you know, that, that's like that, that classic like, climate change being related to the number of pirates, right? Yeah, exactly. And say, like, pirates cause the earth, pirates cool the earth because as the number of pirates has decreased over the years, the, the world yeah. has gotten hotter. So clearly yeah, exactly. pirates, lack of pirates is causing climate change. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like the classic joke of correlation yes. <laughs> causation. Um, yeah. And frankly, not too far off from what the climate change deniers are actually claiming. Yeah, really, yeah. Um, but like this, this is definitely one where like, while we can't jump to the conclusion that it's a causation thing, it smells like it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, right. It sure like, does. like metals in the brain feels like something that could cause cognitive impairment, yeah. especially ongoing cognitive impairment. Yeah. Like we we don't know whether Alzheimer's is something that's triggered or like triggered and then it just like moves on its own, right? Like you you start the train and it keeps going, or whether it's something that actually can be reversed. Mm-hmm. So. I, yeah, I really hope this gets more attention. I think it will. Cool. Cool story. Cool. Uh, Shall we end the episode? Yeah, let's kill it. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Uh, We'll have links to all of the studies we talked about today and more in this episode's show notes, which you can find at our website, doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed our explanation of these two stories. We've got two more exciting ones coming up for you next week, so check back then. Uh, Before you go, we wanted to ask one quick favor of you. If you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor um, and go online to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to podcasts and recommend us or give us a review or send us a thumbs up. We appreciate all of the support and it really helps us get a little more get a little more attention out there in the scary world of the internet you know where anything is possible <laughs> but uh in the meantime <laughs> also did you see something in the news you'd like us to cover a headline that's too good to be true or a story that's just not explained clearly enough give us a shout by email at stories at doubleblindscience.com or on twitter at double blind sigh. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to say, oh yeah, well, it'll be perfect for this in quantum networking and we'll use it when we're trying to bloop, 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 doop, 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 doop. but I, I, right. I, I don't, I don't understand quantum it's computing. totally fine. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. Every time yeah. I've looked into it, it's, it's been like kind of a wormhole of like, oh, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on.
So this was research out of the University of Melbourne in Australia. Oh, Melbourne. Mel- no, Melbourne. Melbourne. Me- Melbourne. Okay. Well, seriously, you go you go there and you say Melbourne, and they just they just don't they don't know what you're talking <laughs> it's about. Like Toronto. Yeah, Toronto. Sometimes someone says Toronto, I go Tor- where? What? Where's that? Where? Yeah. Because I'm rude, not because I don't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> so this is research out of the University of Melbourne, and they looked at 91 <laughs> Melbourne. Mel- Melbourne. 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 